Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. I went with somebody from Newsweek to the family of some terrorists. And when you're sitting down with these people, you can get them to talk about their life in ways that you never expected to. I don't think that you can separate the surroundings. And that's why a lot of food writing today is a little bit frustrating because they don't want all that. They want the recipe. You know, and I personally would rather have the cultural context. HeritageRadioNetwork.org proudly presents Evolutionaries, Joan Nathan. Joan Nathan is an award-winning American author of cookbooks and a global authority on Jewish cuisine. Nathan has written 10 cookbooks, winning numerous awards for them. Her stated goal is to preserve Jewish traditions by interviewing cooks and documenting their recipes and stories for posterity. For three years, she lived in Israel, working for Mayor Teddy Kollek of Jerusalem. She was one of the founders of New York's 9th Avenue Food Festival under Mayor Abraham Beam. Nathan was also the executive producer and host of Jewish Cooking in America with Joan Nathan, a PBS series based on her cookbook, Jewish Cooking in America. When it comes to Jewish cuisine in its many iterations, Joan is who most people turn to. Well, the first time I went to Israel... I didn't really want to go. I'd been, I loved to travel. You know, I was young. I traveled to many, many places. And somebody that I met, actually an old boyfriend who was in the Peace Corps, said, you know, the most interesting place I've ever visited is Israel. And my father had been a Zionist, which is probably the reason I didn't want to go at that age in my life. So I went, and it just hit me like a balloon. It just... I loved it. I felt free there. I felt a little bit like the Wild West. You know, I was young. I wanted to visit other places. I loved it. I came back. I'd never traveled that far away. I must have been 24, 25. And I couldn't sleep when I came back, not realizing it was real jet lag. (laughs) And I thought, I have to go back. So I started learning Hebrew and then decided to go back to go and try to live there, which I did six months later. I was in an Olpan, a place to learn Hebrew, and a journalist from Haaretz, which is like the New York Times of Israel, interviewed me as a new immigrant. And he said, you know, there's a really good job in the mayor's office. So I applied for the job, not realizing the reason that the job was available is the last person who had the job was nosing into the press secretary's business, who was having an affair with the secretary. And so... They wanted somebody who didn't speak very good Hebrew. So his secretary, this woman, helped me, because my Hebrew was not very good. She helped me with the written part of things. I had no idea what was going on. And then I got the job. And it was it was the foreign press secretary to the mayor of Jerusalem. And it was a fabulous job. And I remember I didn't meet the mayor until after I got the job, but part of the reason I got the job was not that they helped me, but I spoke French. And Teddy Kollek did not speak French, the mayor of Jerusalem then, who was longtime, very famous mayor. And he actually knew my father, which was something I never let him know when I was 
applying for the job. But I remember the first job I had working for Teddy Kollek was to take David Ben-Gurion, who was very old then, around Jerusalem with a French TV crew because Teddy did not speak French. So I got to spend a whole a day or two with David Ben-Gurion. I mean, that was really something. And he died shortly thereafter. I still can't believe that I landed that job. Teddy Kollek was somebody that everybody knew. So everybody came to Jerusalem. It was an exciting time. The city was one again. Teddy was trying very hard to work with the Arab community in Jerusalem. You know, I got to meet all kinds of people from the city of Jerusalem, from every walk of life. So for me, as a young 26-year-old, I guess, when I started working there, my job was to learn the people in the city of Jerusalem. And of course, that meant food. But, you know, that wasn't the most essential part of my job. So I went to all these communities. Whenever Teddy would go to a white Russian church or to an Arab community, I got to go with him. And it was just wonderful. It was really an eye-opener for me about life and about people and, and to learn from a master at working within a political system. So I could see what a, a joke would make in a city council where everybody was striving to basically knock him down. And he would just break the ice with people. And I also noticed how sitting down with people and talking to them also broke the ice. People that maybe didn't want to talk to you or didn't have the similar beliefs with you. But most important for me in my future career, which I had no idea was going to be my career, was that when you break bread with people and you say to them, I like your food, it breaks such ice. It just starts communication. And that's what really I learned the most. And, you know, that led to writing about cookbooks, and I've done that ever since. Joan Nathan's first and perhaps most popular book, The Flavor of Jerusalem, was published in 1975 by Little Brown and drew from her experiences living in Israel. We sort of wrote this book as a lark, just for fun. Yes, I went back to the communities, I ate with the communities, got recipes from the communities, but it was all very personal. It wasn't a community as such, it was a human being. You know, and I've done that forever. You know, this might sound a little bit conceited, but I know there was an article, and I never saw it, but a friend of mine saw it, that my flavor of Jerusalem, they said that the way that I did headnotes was the beginning of headnotes where you said something, where they were really important. You know, using food as a way to get to culture and history you enter a home. When somebody writes a recipe or whenever you go to someone's home, it's the dish, but the dish in cultural context. I'll give you an example. This was the day of the Yom Kippur War, and I had no idea that it was starting. I was visiting an Arab woman, and she was making pizza bread. And I went to her home, and I really liked her. Her name was Silwa Abdu. She was a Palestinian who lived near Ramallah. I always wondered what happened to her. She was a good friend of mine, and her mother was making pizza bread, and she always used the bed to have the pizza rise. So she'd put the dough in the bed to make it warm, 
on top of the covers, and you could see the dough rising. And this was something she would never have said to me if I just got the recipe, but without the, the dish. And I never forgot that, you know. And I've and I've seen that in so many other contexts. Somebody was telling me that she makes akasha porridge, and she keeps it warm under the blankets. And that's something that we don't do anymore. You know, these little things. And the the other thing is that it's so important to be there. And that's what I learned early on. On the phone, or on the the internet, you're not going to get the same kind of cultural context, which is the real dish. Filter fish will never go beyond the Jewish population, and it's it's a nostalgic food. I always make gefilte fish the traditional way for Passover, the way that my mother-in-law made it. For Rosh Hashanah, I make it in a ring so that it's much easier because I always have a buffet for about forty people. I want to preserve that, and it's delicious. But I'm always looking at new ways to make it better. So now what I do is I like saute onions, which my mother-in-law never did. But then I also put fresh unsauteed onions in so that you get the sweetness of the sauteed and then the crispness, really, of the others. But what I'm trying to do, again, is preserve recipes, but know that recipes are always changing. So when I was talking about stuffed cabbage, I realized that we're better cooks now than people were 30 years ago. I'm convinced of it. We have the perfect recipe. People are experimenting. They're learning. Some recipes are so good way back then that you don't have to, like a really good kasha varnishkas is a really good kasha varnishkas, which is buckwheat groats and onions and bow tie or homemade noodles, a little bit of grebens, and it's really good. But if you take a recipe like stuffed cabbage, I realized that way back when they made them the way we would do it today. In other words, this old recipe that I tasted that's just delicious with beets and ground beef and lemon and rice and Swiss chard is so modern, right? But that's what they used before they had our ingredients. And we're so used to such sweetness because of the sugar lobby, whatever, that we've transformed recipes. So what I try to do is go back to what it was like that are, it really is in zinc with our tastes of today. And gefilte fish, if you do it the right way, is delicious. But what's happened is we've got had jarred gefilte fish, we've had canned. When I was growing up, before the Seder started, we always had Manischewitz, little round gefilte fish with a toothpick that my mother would have right next to shrimp. Because for her, my mother always had to have drinks. She's still, my mother's 99, she always, she still has drinks every night and a good, strong drink. And this is what we ate. It tasted like cardboard. And then when I started making it myself, or first learned it from my mother-in-law who came straight from Poland, I realized it was delicious. In 1974, working for Mayor Abraham Beam in New York, alongside food legends in the city, Joan Nathan co-founded the Ninth Avenue Food Festival. 
Well, actually, I started out with Lindsay when I first came back. It was 1972, I think. Tom Morgan, who was the press secretary of Lindsay, loved Teddy Collick. So somebody in the mayor's office in Jerusalem set me up with him. And I met him, and he immediately gave me a job saying that his favorite mayor in the world was Teddy Collick. And and it was in the Midtown Planning Department. I forget what it was called. But basically, it was looking over porn shops. And I was doing PR for them. And I, it was right near Ninth Avenue. I was working on my cookbook, The Flavor of Jerusalem, at the time. And I thought, wouldn't it be a good idea to highlight all these wonderful grocery stores on Ninth Avenue? So there was another fellow in the... There were two of us that worked on it. Um, Richard Bassano, I think his name was. And John Phillips. And John and I really got into this project. And we talked to all the merchants and we wrote a cookbook. And I spoke to Tom Morgan and he said, I love this idea, but Lindsay was no longer. So he put me in touch with the press secretary for Abe Bean, the new mayor. When I told him the idea, he said, fabulous. You've got carte blanche to do anything you want. Well, he shouldn't have said that to me because I had worked for Teddy Collick, which I knew meant do whatever you want. So I got all of these mobile units. We got almost every one of them locked up for that weekend. So John Phillips and I, which who were really interested in food at the time, and this was 1974. Who was so interested in it? We decided, first of all, to have a committee for the Ninth Avenue Festival. So we got George Lang, James Beard, Craig Claiborne. We didn't realize that Craig Claiborne and James Beard were not such buddies. We all started at Wolf's Paint Store at 50th and 9th Avenue. We got a cart for James Beard. We walked down the avenue to Giordano's restaurant at 39th and I think it was 39th. This was like a Venetian restaurant. They let us have lunch. I remember they had wonderful big shrimp. And we all discussed the festival and the ideas that we had. At that point, Tom Morgan had left the mayor's office and was now the editor of, or the assistant editor of New York Magazine. So he said to us, we're going to do a pullout on 9th Avenue for an exclusive. So I said to everybody, well, they're doing an exclusive. So Craig Claiborne immediately thought, oh, I'm doing something with the New York Times. And in those days, the writing was a little bit bigger And he took the whole cover of the food section on Ninth Avenue. And we had no idea that anybody would come. Oh, and then what we we had this idea that we would invite people like I remember Michael and Ariane Batterberry, who were good friends of mine before that. We asked them to be at I think it's called Alps Drugstore with their book on the town in New York. Um, Diana Kennedy was at another store, probably a South American store. And I remember at the time, just to show you cultural context, she told me about this new invention that if you were in the food world and she thought I could qualify, had not written a cookbook yet, you could get it. It was called the Cuisinart. And she said, and it cuts cabbage and potatoes. And I thought, oh, good for potato pancakes. I got it wholesale right away. Anyway, so we um, we thought, well, no one's going to come. You know, who's going to come on Ninth Avenue? So we had this other idea, and I forget the guy's name. He was a food artist from Latin America. And so we got the Hilton Hotel where he put, like, hundreds of pounds or thousands of pounds, I don't know, of rice and colored it and did a food float. 
And then we thought, well, we can't have little Mayor Beam walking next to this big, so we got something for him to sit on so he wouldn't be so little. But the people of Ninth Avenue, these merchants, you know, they don't want to spend any money on anything. And until the Ninth Avenue pullout came out on New York Magazine, nobody was doing anything for to decorate their stores, to do anything for their stores. The minute that came out a few days before, they had everything to decorate their stores. But it, it was a little touch and go for all of us. There was lamb roasted outside of some of the stores. There was, it was really a wonderful um, event. It was like a festival. And it was the only other festival at that time was San Gimignano. Anyway, the day of the of the uh, event, John Phillips and I went down to Ninth Avenue. We were so scared that nobody would show up. This was before the internet. 150,000 people showed up. It was unbelievable. And so it's been going on ever since. It was really terrific. New York isn't the only city Jones had a major effect on. She also serves on the board of the Washington, D.C.-based organization Martha's Table, by whom she was recently honored for her work on Sunday night suppers. First of all, the city has changed tremendously. I mean, it has just grown up. It was all brownstones when I moved there. And there was no, no really good restaurants at all. Now there are so many restaurants. It's it's not as interesting a food culture as New York, but it's a pretty good food culture. But what's been really important to me is this fundraising that I've been doing. I'm on the board of Martha's Table, which is a organization that feeds um, the homeless, it's sort of short-term hunger and long-term hunger. Five years ago, Alice called me and said, what are two organizations that you think would benefit if we had some dinners for the Obama inauguration, fundraising dinners. And I told her DC Central Kitchen, which, you know, hires addicts and other people and retrains them in the food world and Martha's Table. So we've been doing this for, this is going to be our sixth year. And I feel as if what it's done, I mean, I've done a lot of things in Washington that I've really enjoyed doing. But this has been really interesting, and it's sort of pulled everything together for me because I have to get all the chefs to come to cook for these dinners, which is like last year was 28 dinners, and there are two chefs per dinner. It's a way for these chefs to learn from each other. So I sort of I, – I'm a matchmaker. And they basically do a small dinner at people's houses, and the, the money goes straight to charity, straight to charity. We raised $400,000 last year in two days. It was great. So that's made me meet a lot of younger chefs and go to their restaurants and learn from them and also get involved in, I mean, it's it's so many interesting things going on right now. And it's sort of also being a, um, you know, a senior citizen of this world where people respect you. And I kind of like that. It's, I mean, why not? Um, but also seeing all the young people doing exciting things is, is very rewarding and, and, and trying to mentor as many of them as possible. Almost as many times I went to Israel, I went to France. And for some reason, it never hit me that I would want to write a book on the food of the Jews of France. And... Um, Then I went back a few, uh, maybe, I don't know, six, seven years ago, and I visited one of my cousins, one of my favorite cousins. And 
he said to me, I'm going to take you to the villages that I was hidden during the war. And he'd never taken his wife and he'd never taken his children. So the two of us spent an afternoon. He lived in Annecy, France, which is right near Geneva. And we went to the hills and visited all of these places. And I realized that when I lived in France, which was 1963-64, it wasn't so long after the war. And people were still getting their lives together. And I realized these stories were now opening up because time had gone by and these people were getting older and nearing death. I realized it was time that I could talk to people, and that's what I did. I talked to them about the war because the war is so important. Even though we think we want to go back to the past and that this past is static, we want something static, so we're looking for the food of the past. The food of the past was always changing, changing when people moved, changing when foods came in. The most difficult and the most interesting thing that I've learned in my life is the most constant is change. This piece was produced by Aaron Fairbanks and Jack Inslee with additional research by Sari Kamen. In order of appearance, the songs used in this piece are Glamour Attack by Space Disease, Blazian Fish Cakes by Rectech, Cycles by M. Constant, Strider by Comanche, Honey Drops Theme by the California Honey Drops, I Love New York by Space Disease, Cali Bites by Ball of Flame Shoot Fire, Let's Not by Shadowbox, and once again, Glamour Attack by Space Disease. Thanks for listening to this program, and connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, iTunes, Stitcher, and more.